was, you know, in, in Wangaratta, there was this uh, wonderful bike ride known as the Beechworth Rail Trail. And it was, it was a great one. It just, it's 44 kilometres from Wangaratta to, to Beechworth, and you feel every kilometre of it. It's up a hill. It's in the Alpine region there, so you can imagine a bit of, uh, bit of a hard yakka. And there's, for about 20 k's, it's, it's actually quite flat. Then you go at a, at, there's this point where out at, um, oh, I can't remember where it's from now, but it, it starts to sudden, suddenly just go up and climb. Every about 40 minutes, you're in first gear, climbing. And you go up there, and then you get to this place called Everton. And, you know, it's this nice little place out there, and, and, uh, and it's, the rail trail used to be a railway line. It was as steep as you could get without the train sliding back down the rails type thing. And you get to Everton, and there was this railway station sort of still remnant there. It was a water station now, and it's called Everton Upper. And what would happen is you would, you would ride up this hill, and, and you'd be going there for ages. It's like, oh, man. You know, the first time I did it, I'm like, wow, this is, this is a long ride. Then it levels out, and I'm going, oh, the worst is over. Get to Everton Upper, and there's a big water tank. Obviously, they know it's coming. And I'm like, oh, no worries. Well, Beechworth's not an 18Ks. Okay, fine. Let's keep pedaling. No worries. Level for about a kilometre. This is okay. I'm liking this. I know I'm high up. Next thing you know, up she goes. Steeper. I spent the next 90 minutes in first gear. <laughs> the ride home, so much faster. <laughs> yeah, 90 minutes up a hill, 30 minutes down. Beautiful ride, and you just hammer down the hill. And, and I, it was really cool because you'd make the climb, and at the top of the climb is Beechworth. And Beechworth has a bakery. And you would load up on curry pies. They had their water there. There was my, one of my favourite roasters in the area for coffee. So you go to the coffee shop and get your UBU triple shot there. And then you go around the corner to the bakery and then you'd load up your camelback, you know, the water tank on your back um, at this bakery and then just hammer home. It was awesome. And you get home before dinner. It was great. Second Corinthians 10 today we're looking at. And Second Corinthians has kind of gone like that a bit. It's gone up. The first six chapters have been a bit of a climb. There's a bit of hard-hitting stuff going on. It's like, oh, man. And then in chapter 7, it kind of starts to level out. It, it levels out. There's, there's Paul's in a good place. He's seeing some progress. He's commending them for that. And he's relieved that the church is coming to a better place. They're taking stands. There's been unrepentant sin, which is now being dealt with. We don't even know what it is, but Paul's happy. We see some affection from Paul in chapter, you know, in chapter 7. He's saying how he's always boasted of their ability to come through when it mattered. There's this jubilance. And then chapter 8 and 9, we looked at, Peter looked at that last week. He was commending them again. Why? Because they're generous. And, and although they're starting to wane on that, the, the purpose of writing is to go, you know what, Jerusalem needs our help and you guys had the idea, but now you're slacking off a bit. Come on, when we come to collect it, please be ready. But he's still commanding. There's generosity and these guys were one of the groups that were leading the charge in the Gentile church. This chapter, chapter 10, starts to climb again. 
It's at this point that scholars are split on how to understand this change. There are those who hold the idea that it's actually the fragments of another letter that has been collated with this one. There's even been suggestion that part of the severe letter that Paul wrote might have found its way into these last few chapters of, of 2 Corinthians. There are those who also believe that 2 Corinthians was all written as one volume. And to explain this change, they say that Paul pretty much had this letter in his man bag for a lot of his travels. And he would write it in stages. And he was jubilant because news he was getting was good. Titus came back with great reviews. Things are changing. So he's written that in. Good on you guys. And then, then, oh, we've got this financial thing coming up. I better get them ready. But in amongst all that, he's, while he's been on the move, while he's been on the run for his own life, and while he's had his own struggles, news has gotten back to him that things are probably not going as well as they should have. And maybe he's picked up the pen going, hey, you've done some good stuff, but let's keep moving. In any case, we know that the climb starts again, the tone changes. Less celebration, more correction. So brace ourselves, let's get a bit, let's buckle up. <laughs> and uh, we'll get into chapter 10 today. We'll look at the first half to start with. Verse 1. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come... I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want, this, want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent will be our, in our actions when we are present. Keep your thumb in there. We'll come back to the rest of the chapter shortly. Now, even though we've read about repentance and forward motion, this chapter shows us that there's still some elements of friction going on. In particular, Paul's authority, his leadership, and his character are still a little bit under the microscope. But we see an interesting response to Paul here. He's, he's acknowledging that he had a reputation for having a somewhat timid, in-person sort of persona. Nothing new to him. In 1, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he actually names himself among the weak and foolish things of the world. The ones that will, the foolish, one of the foolish things that will shame the wise, those who are wise by worldly standards. He writes of coming to Corinth with fear and trembling, actively not seeking to be the hotshot speaker who would wow them with his words. And instead, he wanted to be the quiet achiever who would bring people to Jesus the Messiah, 
knowing that Jesus would back him up in power, that no power coming from him, no wowing, no, res- no, no wordsmithing, none of that stuff, simply Jesus backing him up. Being somewhat timid in person is actually what got the Corinthians to behold Jesus as Lord and not be drawn to him as their next sophist or their next philosophic guru. The church was actually right to think of him as such because this was his missional MO in that part of the world. And it worked wonders while he was there because he could play the patient pastoral game. But when he was away from them, letters had to have an impact. And he had to make strong points that he didn't have time to spoon feed to them when he was there. The regular congregation who knew him were probably figuring this out. The urgency of the severe letter was actually quite uncharacteristic of the Paul they knew. And that probably played a part in their swift response of repentance that came about from it. But there was a new breed coming in, looking to be elevated, looking to appear superior in the church, not knowing the pastoral heart of Paul and being completely dismissive of his way. These would be the ones that would be saying that these letters would mean nothing because Paul didn't have it in him to back it up in person. So Paul's getting wind of all that information. And outside of, yeah, that's nothing new, we see some other interesting elements of his response here. One, he's not changing his approach, even now, unless he has to. And two, he's picking his battles and showing us how believers should do the same. In the first instance, we see that he's still holding that sense of poise that he's already known for. Even though there is the dire need for correction, the timid Paul is still speaking here. And look at the words that are used. From a position of gentleness and humility, I appeal and I beg you. From gentleness and humility of Christ, I appeal and I beg for you guys to put things right in your midst. And when we read the NIV, which I've just read out there, and we look at the Greek, these are very good translations of the words used. They capture Paul's heart and his motives really well. He's remaining gentle, remaining humble, still holding a bit of meekness. Meekness is power under restraint. He's got all the power he needs, but he's restraining himself in order for these guys to come to their senses patiently. We see a great ministry lesson here as well in verse 9 that Paul is clearly not looking to lead people or change people from a position of fear either. You cannot use fear-mongering as a discipleship method. You can't scare people even, even into heaven. You can't come to faith because you don't want to go to hell. It's actually more than that. Instead, we see a heart that is constantly equipping and looking to build people up. Fear is destructive. But Christian ministry builds people up and it equips them. 
Now, this doesn't mean that he won't wield a rod of correction at some point. But it's not his first response. Patience, gentleness, humility, appeal. Those are his first points of call. And I think there's some lessons in all of that for all of us. How we lead people, how we minister to people, how we witness to people. Take fear out of the picture and start appealing and start coming from that position of, of humility and service. Not looking to destruct, destroy, but equip and build. And he does all this because there is activity going on, to the, on under the surface which calls for a spiritual response, not a physical one. This is the bit where he talks about picking his battles. Our flesh and blood response, wherever possible, should be one of this peaceful and peacemaking because aggression, manipulation, fear and all forms of hostility are consistent with the way the world goes to war. In the church, we don't go to war with each other. Instead, we turn our attention to the strongholds which are appropriate to wage war with. Paul talks about strongholds here, and this is a picture of defensive walls. When you and I hold on to something in our hearts and minds that should not be there, and we don't want to let it go, those walls go up. If we are not willing to see the folly or error that we are in, those walls will stay up. And any act of godly building up that is offered when we stay that way will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. So Paul shows us here that we don't fight a spiritual problem, which is all these barricades and walls. We don't fight those things with worldly solutions, which is aggression and hostility. We don't fight a spiritual battle with worldly solutions. That's the classic way of bringing the old saying, you don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Instead, we take it to our knees. And these things can only come down by the divine power of Jesus. The strongholds have clarity here. In this text, strongholds are arguments and divisions that fight God's ways. Strongholds are human forms of wisdom and acts of willful disobedience. Strongholds are thought patterns that capture our imaginations and disregard God. Strongholds are every hostile belief and thought that will rise up and deny, distort or block the gospel that we hold dear to. These strongholds exist in the world and they also exist in the church too. But the power of Jesus behind us can break those down. Mindsets can be torn down. False doctrines can be defeated. Evil imaginations can be captured and made subject to Christ. Worldly attitudes can be shown for the folly they are. Prideful people and others in error can repent. And we will see that more and more as we take those things to Jesus on our knees and do things on his terms not try to find a worldly solution for a spiritual problem. Through scripture and experience, I've learned that people change and people remain changed because Jesus captures them. 
Because the Spirit does His perfect work in them. And they change because faithful believers are patiently praying for them. And sometimes when the Spirit clearly tells us to, we play a role in bringing discipline to the situation. In Paul's thinking, that part is not the first act. Going to our knees is. That's just some thoughts at this point. Let's keep reading. Verse uh, 11. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did get as far as you, as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts, boasts in the, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Hmm. I have an obligatory prop for the week. Now, I feel a little bit inadequate, this one. Peter Telfer last week <laughs> builds the extremer meter. It's this big wedge-shaped thing on the stage and, and, and it formed a, you know, it was a really great visual and I feel a little, a little bit inadequate right now, but... <laughs> From where you were sitting with whatever you have in your person right now. Tell me the exact dimensions of this item. Tell me exactly how, just throw a guess. See, we've had some some guesses thrown out there. And we've all yeah, there's, there's some good ballpark figures there. <laughs> some a little bit more specific than others. <laughs> Can you tell me the wall thickness? Can you tell me the outside and inside diameters of it? Can you tell me the length in millimetres? From where you are, you can't. Even if I come and put it in your hand, there's a few giveaway signs on the side. Not much. But if you had a good look at this, you couldn't tell me exactly what the length or diameters of any kind of what this would be of this product, would you? Years ago, I worked in the steel industry. I was a sales guy, sales guy and truck driver. I'd sell the stuff, I'd deliver the stuff. It was awesome. Sometimes I'd cut it, sometimes I'd do the forklift work, sometimes I'd do, the, you know, do all that sort of stuff. I worked for a wholesaler. We would sell to the retailers, but now and again you'd have a DIY guy walk in our door. 
that was not our market, but they would come in. DIY guy that would kind of go, ah, oh, I kind of need this product, this sort of thing. Reckon you got something that can kind of do that job? How big do you want it? Oh, about that big, about this big, about that thick. I'm like, have you measured this job yet? Have you consulted an engineer? Have you done any, any kind of research to tell me that you've got the right product in your hand? Can you do the right thing with this product? You get things like, how do I weld this stuff? I sell it, I don't weld it. You know, there was all this sort of stuff that would come up and sometimes we'd send people back to their drawing boards. Sometimes, for their own sake, I'd send them to a fabricator down the road. Like, this is a little bit outside your pay grade, mate. You, be, you need to go somewhere else. It was horrifying for people to kind of go, yeah, kind of about that, expecting me to have all the answers. Let's get a bit less technical. Let's think about you and your homes. If you had a contractor doing work in your home and they sounded uncertain on something that really should be precise, you'd probably speak up, wouldn't you? Well, is, is Richard here? Richard Hine? No, we know Richard. He does his kitchens. I've seen a lot of his kitchens in your homes and mine. Imagine he's got a great reputation for being thorough. He measures, then he sends his offsider to measure it all up as well to make sure it's all right. He likes precise. But imagine one of his apprentices come was doing the fitting and he's on the phone to his offsider, to the guys back at the factory. Yeah, it's about a foot wide. I think it's about, you know, I reckon it's, yeah, it's probably about that and I think it's got hinges. I don't know. You'd be on the phone to Richard going, what the heck? You know, come on. There are things that have to be precise all around us. And for good reason. We don't tolerate less than what is precise in many instances. We expect precise when some work gets done for us. When you go and get your curtains shortened like we've done, we expect precise. When we get our cars serviced, we want precise. When you go to the doctor and go, what's wrong with me, doc? Write me a prescription, doctor. Let's do this procedure, doctor. You want to make sure it's pretty precise, right? You don't want to be left guessing. Then why? When we consider the vastness of God and the incredible work of the cross and the full meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Why do we allow our faith to operate on the basis of near enough is good enough? Why do we use dangerously subjective measures on something that can and should be measured with more care than that? You see, there's a breed of church member in Corinth that is doing just that leaving their faith to chance. Paul says they are comparing themselves with themselves. They're making themselves the measuring stick of their faith. They look in the mirror and go, yeah, I'm doing fine. Me and Jesus are cool. And because they seek to be elevated they then wear the burden of making themselves the measure stick of the faith of others as well. 
with no actual guiding measure to compare that to, other than the subjective one of self. This pipe can be measured with time-honoured, recognised tools. 755 millimetres, by the way. So the 900 is close. Inside and outside diameter, wall thickness with a vernier. Stuff that's in many of our sheds. I don't have to guess when I go to Bunnings and ask for what I need. I have all the measures I need. I can cut exactly the size. I can do everything precisely because that's what the job calls for, particularly when you're doing plumbing in your kitchen. This is the leftover pipe from rebuilding the kitchen. You wanted that to be precise. Paul warns us here that to look in the mirror and gauge or measure our faith by what we see looking back at us is not wise. It's the equivalent of near enough will do when it actually will not. Human wisdom and reason does not save us no matter how spiritual it sounds. Only the gospel in this case, the gospel that Paul preaches and teaches and lays his life down for, only the gospel does. Only the new covenant does. Only complete faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus saves us. Anything less, a good dose of law-keeping, a self-examination that reveals we're basically a good person, any other human wisdom that seeks to reduce the holiness of God or the power of the gospel? These are all faulty measuring tools of where our life is really at. We're not to trust them. We're not to settle for near enough in our faith expression. Philippians 2.12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, the gospel deserves a bit of reverent awe when we apply it to our lives and seek to live it out. And our own human measures tend to leave that reverence out and we will steer towards reverence of self more than reverence of God every time. But when we look into the mirror of the Holy Spirit... And when we look into the mirror of the Word of God, and when we look into the mirror of accountable community, we can, we can be ensured that we're being measured the right and wise way. No longer is it the subjective standard of self, but it's the objective mirror of the testimony of the Spirit, the testimony of His Word, and the testimony of His people. The last part of the chapter here actually then shows why Paul thinks it's important for Corinth to be in the right place, behaviorally, spiritually, and doctrinally. 
Towards the end of the chapter, he speaks of boasting in proper limits and spheres of service and territories and stuff like that. There's nowhere near enough time to talk about that today. Except for this, it appears to be based on agreement Paul had with the Jerusalem church. Peter and the others would deal with the Jews mainly. He'd go to the Gentile work and Galatians has a bit of um, uh, writing about this particular arrangement. But in verse 15 today, we see that Paul sees Corinth as a strategic place for the work of the gospel to spread from. He's looking at it as a missional outpost. Not only is it a church that should be strong and powerful and, and doing well, it's a very large, influential city. It's a great place to be able to reach into the reaches such as Rome. We already know that Romans was written from Corinth, sent from a, with a Corinthian messenger to be read out in Rome to a church that Paul hadn't even met yet. Why? Because it was going to be from Corinth to Rome, and if you read Romans, he had Spain and beyond in his mind as well. Western Europe was in his sights. So in Paul's mind, the mission depends on Corinth. And it depends on them being this sort of way. And let's look at this as our church as well. Being unified. Being rid of idols. Being repentant of ongoing sinful things. Being willing to reject false teachers and those with less than stellar motives being built up, able to operate in freedom of conscience, but also in reverent awe of God and choosing holiness. Being able to articulate his gospel and not another. And being all in on that gospel. And as a result of all that, being radically reconciled to God and each other. And motivated to be active participants in the ministry of reconciliation towards others. So he says here in this section, for that to happen, stop using human thinking to measure or reason out faith. Stop looking for ways to be elevated among others. Stop looking for all the ways mere humans commend you. Instead, we are to live in the way that lives up to the measure of God. The measure of the audience of one that truly matters. Let him constantly measure us and let any commendation come strictly from him. When all that matters is what Jesus thinks, then we're perfectly placed for the ministry and mission that he has set aside for us. I'm going to leave it there and we'll continue this thought next week. For now, we'll be just bow in prayer and do some quick examination before we worship again.